just when I figured you'd reached your lowest point. You're listening to the Rish Outcast. Kind of makes me feel better about having done Highlander too. Do you who love Chalupas? I will give Chalupas to you. And if you need Chalupas, where who babe, that's what we're gonna do. Wait, was that a euphemism or did you actually mean the food Chalupas? You know what Chalupas represent, baby, when I use them in this context. Blah, blah, but you can bet the line is gonna rhyme with sex. All right. Hey there, dudes and dudettes. This is Rish Outfield, and you are listening to the Rish Outcast. This is sort of a surprise episode, although it really shouldn't be. If you're a listener of my show, you know that one of my three dictums... You have three what? ...is things always take longer than you think that they will. So I'm going to be presenting the second half of the people we touch today. It was meant to just be a single episode, a Valentine's Day episode, but as of now, there is no way I'm going to make that deadline. And so I'm going to split it in two. Well, oh, you're, you're hearing this after the first part, so you already know what happened. It's just... Was it John Lennon that said life is what happens when you're making other plans? That's kind of how it works. I just had too many things on my plate. I figured, okay, if I do this today and this tomorrow and this the next day, I will make that deadline. And then something goes wrong on the first day and it totally screws over the other two days. And so hopefully you enjoyed the first half of the story enough that you are back and anxious to hear what happens or doesn't happen in this second story. Uh, As I probably didn't say last time, these are just meant to be small, short vignettes, not incredibly important stories in the life of Lara Deming. Little lessons that she learns, little experiences that she has. Some should be amusing, some should be whatever the opposite of amusing is. And one day we'll get the conclusion, like the big story that takes place uh, a couple of years down the line that pays off what was set up at the end of You're in Good Hands. Uh, So with no further ado, let me continue The People We Touch, already in progress. The People We Touch by Rish Outfield. Laura knocked on the door twice, and not very loud. Auntie Tori? Laura asked, not wanting to interrupt anything Holcomb might be doing in there. Yes, Laura, came the reply. Laura turned the knob. The door wasn't locked, and opened the bedroom door just a crack. Can I talk to you? You're already doing so, Holcomb said. And since I'm awake, you might as well continue. Laura didn't know how to interpret that. The witch almost always sounded cranky, so it was hard to tell when she was upset or frustrated, and when she was just being old Widow Holcomb. Can I come in? Yes, Laura, come in, Holcomb said. Or stand in the doorway and we'll have our conversation like this. Laura opened the door the rest of the way and found the witch on her bed above the covers, only halfway sitting up. Oh, you were sleeping? Are you all right? I'm fine. Can't a woman take a nap once in a while? Laura didn't know the old woman to act like an old woman, so no, it didn't seem right for her to take naps every now and then. I wanted to ask you about the spells people have you do. Have you finished your homework, Lara? My homework? Yes, it's tasks your teachers assign you to complete while you're at home. I I finished math on the bus and got my history reading done in class. And your English assignment? I have more than a week to hand that in. 
We're supposed to pick a movie based on a book and write up the differences. Here's a news extra for you, Lara. The book was better. When Lara didn't laugh, and she almost never did, Holcomb sat up straighter and said, All right, what's this question you want to ask me? You use magic to help people sometimes, not just hurt them, right? Oh, certainly. Charms to make daughters more attractive, salves to make racehorses run faster, blessings to stop lovers' wandering eyes, potions to make chronic headaches fade. She couldn't help but grin, and it made the lines on her face show deeply, severely. And sometimes those headaches weren't even my doing. The girl focused on the part that was relevant to her. You know how people pay you to cast spells for them? Yes. Holcomb would go to different cities, Denver, Salt Lake, Phoenix, Santa Fe, and sell potions, charms, and elixirs. Lara had gone with her a few times, and they were like farmer's markets or swap meets, except with witchcraft involved. And often people would task Holcomb with casting spells for them, usually healing or fertility, but often for romance or sex. She charged customers for this, sometimes as much as a thousand dollars apiece. The love spells you cast for people, do those always work? Holcomb considered it. A fair question. With matters of the heart, things can often go awry. Matters of the loins are much more straightforward. Awry means wrong, right? It does. I once cast a spell on an errant husband, oh, several years ago this was, and he refused to leave his wife's side after that. He wouldn't go to work. He wouldn't leave the house. She had to drug him to get any peace, to sleep through the night without him touching her, climbing on. Finally, she had me break the spell. She'd tried doing it herself, and it kept coming back. And she ended up leaving him. The witch leaned forward. A fan of irony, Lara. I used to help Mom with ironing all the time, Lara said. I liked the little steam button. Of course you did. So, in answer to your question, I cast love spells often, and from time to time they don't work, or work too well. A man once paid me to make him irresistible to women, and he wasn't even reported missing before he'd been digested by half the ladies in his neighborhood. Ew, Lara said, nearly turning around and leaving the room. Did you do that on purpose? Not at all. Holcomb said. Then she squinted. Although the man's personal check had bounced, come to think of it, cost me ten dollars at the bank. Lara preferred not to think about the many, many, many bad things Holcomb had done over the years, very usually to men. Lara, dear, Holcomb said softly, you are so young. Love among children your age isn't meant to work out. Right now, you're finding out who you are, what you like, how far you're willing to go, learning lessons by trial and error. Don't put too much faith in happily ever afters. There's time for that. Once you're grown, once you've developed your brain a little and not just your body, and if you choose to follow in my daunting footsteps, once you've taken what you want and stamped on those who dared to cross you the normal parts of growing up. It was all so simple, according to the witch. Quite a life Lara Deming had to look forward to. Science class had ended, and mercifully, everybody else had left the classroom. Mr. Seckler, can I talk to you? He was wearing glasses now, but had never worn them before having been a contacts guy for the past dozen years, even a pair of contacts tinted green. Miss Lara, anything wrong? Before she could say something, he said, It was just a quiz, not even worth five percent of your grade. It's not that, she said, although she had done quite poorly on it, somehow confusing vertebrates and invertebrates in probably the easiest question on the sheet. It's about you. You and Miss Loon. He nodded, understanding. 
So, she told you. Me and her were talking, yeah, and about inviting you and some other students to the wedding. I wasn't sure about that Martinez kid, the one they call you-know-what bag, but she seemed to think it would be cute. What? They were inviting douchebag Martinez to the wedding? But that huge mistake wasn't important right now. No, it's not that. It's that I, um, heard that you're, well, that you used to be. He nodded, his face going more sober, his jaw tightening somewhat. Go ahead. You can say it. Gay, is that true? Well, it, he sighed, it certainly used to be true. I hope that doesn't change how you look at me, as an authority figure or anything. It certainly never affected the way I teach school, except for having less patience with girls in short skirts, I suppose. But yes, a year ago I would have told you that I was one hundred percent homosexual. One hundred percent, she repeated, more than a little horrified. Well, there's the thing. I felt like I was gay since, well, before I was your age, probably elementary school. I believe we're born with certain tendencies and inclinations and behavioral characteristics. People love to argue about this sort of thing. Nature or nurture and all that, you follow? Laura nodded, but was only getting most of it. Seckler continued. But until this year, the only woman I've ever been remotely attracted to was an actress named Brigitte Nielsen, and you wouldn't know her. He didn't wait for a confirmation. Red Sonia, check it out sometime. Do yourself a favor. He flipped the air with his hand, in a motion that did strike Lara as kind of feminine, though she might not have noticed it otherwise. But I guess I was bisexual all along. I just never met the right woman until now. Laura had had a sinking feeling ever since her English teacher had made that little revelation. But it was definitely getting sinkier. Miss Loon said you had a partner. A, a boyfriend. Miss Loon does talk a lot, doesn't she? He muttered. And there was a bit of the smart-talking queer characters from Modern Family in the way he said it. Look, I know this is a sticking point for a lot of people around here, especially the religious ones. And I could probably get in trouble for even talking to you about it. The same as if I counseled you about abortion, or the true age of the earth, or it being wrong to shoot at deer with rifles every week before Halloween. No, I I'm not like that, Lara insisted. I'm not— I believe that about you, Lara. They say you come from the West Coast, where seeing two old ladies holding hands would be seen as sweet instead of an unclean abomination. He said it like he'd heard those very words a time or two. Yes, I was living with a man until recently. His name was Very, short for Oliver. A strange, wistful look came over Mr. Seckler's handsome face, a face much like the one Laura wore when she looked at pictures of her family. Her dead family. We'd been together for three years, and I still feel warmly toward him, despite how it ended. How, uh, how did it end? she asked afraid to hear the answer. Well, he, he didn't believe it. He thought it was a joke, a mean prank or trick I was taking too far. It hurt him that I had found someone else, and probably hurt him more that it was a woman, even though that shouldn't have been the case. What does she have that I don't have, and all that? It was hard to explain to him, when I could hardly explain it myself. But he had to accept it eventually. What happened to him? To Vary? Well, he hails from New Mexico and got a job transfer down to Las Cruces. It worked out really well, actually, as far as work goes. Do you still love him? Seckler made that face again, the thinking of dead relatives' face. Sure. Part of me will always love the guy. We would have gotten married ourselves before too long, now that it's legal here. Though I do realize today that I probably would have ruined that eventually, the way I ruined things in February. He flinched away from Laura, surprised. Laura, what's the matter? 
she felt moisture on her cheek and recognized there were tears there. I'm sorry, she said. No reason to be. It's a sad story, but one with a happy ending. The bell rang, and once again, Laura was late for class. I've got to go. Sorry, Mr. Seckler. Don't worry, he said, as she headed fast for the door. I'll write you a note. But she had already gone out into the hall. She dialed the number. Not sure it would even ring. I mean, who had a home phone these days? But the call did go through, and was picked up on the third ring by an elderly-sounding woman who said, Perry? in an elderly-sounding way. Hi. My name is Laura. I went to school with Wade. Is he there? Sorry, afraid not. He lives in Spokane now, my grandson. Oh, Laura said, and closed the Google search for Wade Perry on the computer. So much for that bright idea. I can give you the number to his cellular, though, the grandmother suggested, obviously smiling. Even old widow Holcomb wouldn't call it a cellular nowadays. I've got it here somewhere. She said it like it was a question, but it seemed to be just the way she spoke. She found the number in less than a minute, and said, oddly, It was nice speaking with you, dear. Tell Wade to call his Nona once in a while. Will do. Thanks very much. Laura dialed the new number, and it too was answered after the third ring. Yellow. Hi, um, is this Wade? W Wade Perry? Yeah, that's me. Who's this? Well, I don't know if you remember me, but I was in elementary school with you, up until sixth grade. I'm Laura Deming? She said her name like it was a question, in an unconscious imitation of the boy's grandmother. Oh, sure. I remember you. You guys got in a car wreck. Your sister Emma died. That's right, she said, forging on. It didn't really bother her that he remembered her sister, considering how popular she had been. We were in Holton's class, second grade, Wade offered. But Lara already knew who he was. She had called him, after all. Mr. Chadwick's too, right? That's right. Where do you live now? At Connecticut, Lara lied. She had had the worst time figuring out how to spell Connecticut just that week, so why not? I just wanted to call you and ask you something. Wade made a sound through his teeth. Oh, I think I know what it is, he said. And before she could argue, he said, And hey, listen, I'm sorry that I was such a jackass to you when I was a kid. I was really stupid. Well, you did make some of us pretty miserable sometimes, Lara said which was not an exaggeration and didn't let him off the hook. I had this thing with bra straps. For years I thought it was so funny to... Lara didn't want to listen to his greatest hits. That wasn't me. Well, there was a time I did that thing where I grabbed your pigtails and stuck them in your ears or your nose, Wade said. I knew it was mean, but I didn't care. And Lara remembered that. She hadn't thought of it in years. But suddenly, she was eight years old again, and Wade Perry was saying, You look hungry! Here! And shoved the end of her pigtails right in her mouth, a few strands of hair going up Laura's nose, too. She considered hanging up then, that memory not particularly welcome. But then the boy said, So hey, I just want to apologize for that. I was a big chungus to everybody back then, but later... I got some medication, and I started to think before I did stuff. You know? I didn't know that, Lara said. So, what are you calling about? You want to come to the wedding? Wedding? Whose wedding? Mine. I'm getting married in March. First day of spring. 22nd or 23rd, I can't remember exactly. 
but you're fifteen years old. Laura couldn't help but exclaim. He laughed, but it was a bit of a strained one. Yeah, well, I'm sixteen, actually. Oh, never mind then, Laura said, though sixteen was still way too young for weddings. Except for in fairy tales. Maybe even then. Wade went on. So, Cody's pregnant, and it turns out her family's really religious, so we're getting married on the first day of spring. Oh, Lara said. Congratulations. I hope you'll be happy. Thanks, Lara, he said, and his voice was pretty sober now. Why is it you're calling me, then? Well, I was thinking about you. About the sixth grade and Mr. Chadwick's class. You know, those days. And you decided you love me and want me to marry you instead? Wow. Before Lara could say anything else, he added, Sorry, just joking. No, tell me what made you... How'd you get my number? Your grandma gave it to me. Said you should call her sometime. Before she could be deflected again, she said, So... I wanted to ask you if you remember this time that you were in class. And this girl, Holly Adamson, th this fat girl was... Oh, sure. But she wasn't fat. Okay, maybe not, but... Yeah, I think about her all the time. Nothing happened to her, did it? Now his voice sounded totally serious. Not that I know of. I just wondered if you remembered the time you were, you know... All into her and stuff. Yes, of course. Of course I do. And this he said with a bit of a spark, with the tone of somebody remembering a pivotal moment in their life. Well, did you... I don't know what happened there. Why I was so crazy about her. But man, I followed her around. I wrote her songs. I tried to hold her hand. I told her things I didn't tell anybody else. Holly... Lynn Adamson. He even knew her middle name. Right, Laura said, her ears burning. Well, I'm sorry about that. I know you were embarrassed. Yeah, I made an ass out of myself with her. Her dad called my mom and they made a whole thing about it. He sighed, deeply and loudly. And then the spell was broken and I really hope the embarrassment went away, Lara said, gripping the phone with tight, sweating fingers. Yeah, right. It was like a spell, like on a cartoon, but... And he went silent for a long time. Too long. Hello? Lara said, wiping her hand on her pant leg and looking at her phone. Are you still there? Yeah, sure. It's just that I still think about her all the time. When I hear certain songs, when I smell soap or gum, like when the blossoms are on the trees, I think about Holly Adamson, and it's like I'm eleven again. So in love, it makes me feel like I'm drowning. Laura's eyes were wide, hearing this kind of talk, after all this time. You know... I like Cody and all, and I hope we have a good life and stuff. But I never loved anything like I loved Holly Adamson. Never. Lara ran her hand over her face and down over her eyes and cheeks. What had she done? I'm so glad you called, Lara, the formerly cruel and oafish boy said over the phone. If you want to come to Spokane... It would be great to see somebody from the old school, from Mrs. Holton's second grade class. I miss those guys whenever I... I'm in Connecticut now, Wade, she said in a voice barely above a whisper. But I wish that I could go back, and... Are you all right, Laura? The elementary school loudmouth asked, sounding decent and caring and vulnerable. Did I say the wrong thing? I I'm sure sorry. No. I'm sorry, Laura said, and her voice absolutely refused to go back to normal. Have a great wedding, Wade. 
dark waters watch over you. It was something Holcomb had said to her once, that Lara never understood, but never forgot. Hey, I didn't mean— Wade started to say, but Lara hung up and blocked the number on her phone. Maybe she could send him something, some kind of magical wedding present that would ensure that— But no, she'd done enough to this poor classmate of hers, and the hits just kept on coming. Lara went up to Miss Loon's desk as soon as class was over, noticing a distasteful glare from Judith Almondry, who always tried to monopolize their teacher's time and attention. Can I ask you something, Miss Loon? Of course, she said, then added, as long as you can ask it while I'm erasing the board. Sure. She proceeded to wipe down the whiteboard in preparation for her next class, so Lara jumped right into it. I read this story the other day about this man who goes to a hypnotist to fix the— Judith made a distressed sound, waiting impatiently by the door. But she was ignored. What's it called, the story? Miss Loon asked. Um, I think it was just the hypnotist or the hypnotized or something. Laura lied. Who's the author? The teacher asked and Judith huffed and exited the classroom, leaving just Laura and Maura Loon standing there. Um, LaSalle something, Laura said, remembering a general LaSalle in Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum, which she'd chosen to do her report on. So the man asks the hypnotist to make him believe that he is happy in his life, and when he leaves, everything is great. But his wife tells him nothing has changed. Why is he so happy? And when he explains, she says it's not real happiness, that he's being tricked into thinking he's happy, and the man doesn't get why it matters. Lara stopped talking and waited, hoping her teacher would comment, maybe agree with the wife, or maybe say something useful about the story. Instead, Miss Loon said, It's good that you're so engaged by your reading. She finished wiping down the board and tossed the paper towel into the trash can. Engaged, Laura thought. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, what happens in the end? Laura quickly made up an ending. He goes back to the hypnotist and has him snap his fingers, and then, like, he forgets he ever thought his life was so great in the first place, you know? Now she hoped her teacher would comment about that admittedly poor ending to the imaginary story. That's the end. That's the end. And what did you think, Lara? Well, this wasn't working at all like she hoped that it would. I don't know. Is there a difference between being happy and being tricked into thinking you're happy? The man doesn't seem to think so. Right, but he's under a spell, so of course he wouldn't see it. What do you think? Well... I have a bias, Lara. You know what that means, right? Uh-huh. I have a bias because I'm the happiest I've ever been right now. So I... Wait, please. Lara couldn't help but interrupt her. She was afraid if she heard more, she might start crying, which was something Victoria Holcomb couldn't stomach and had made Lara extra insecure about. What if it was you that was hypnotized, Miss Loon? she said quickly. What if I saw you get hypnotized on stage at a show, and I knew you weren't really happy, and all I had to do was snap my fingers and the sp spell would be broken? Her voice caught on the word. Would you want me to do it? To break the spell? Miss Loon asked. She leaned in a little bit closer. The teacher smelled like Pert Plus and Paul Mollive. Lara? Are you upset about something? Lara sniffled and angrily wiped at her eyes with her sleeve. No, just tell me what you'd say. Honestly, I would feel worse about being tricked, especially if the people around me saw me get hypnotized and they all knew I was acting on a post-hypnotic suggestion rather than something I was really feeling. And you'd want the spell to be broken, even if it meant you'd be sad again. 
Miss Loon pondered this. Wow, Laura, she said at last. This really does apply to me and what I've been going through right now. At the start of this month, I was pretty down in the dumps. And now I'm at a high point in my life. And if you told me we'd had a hypnotist come here in an assembly and, even though I couldn't remember it, that was why I was feeling this way. I think I'd want to know the truth. I'd want to know that I felt what I felt for real and not because of some guy with a watch on a chain. Laura took a moment to process this, and the first bell rang, meaning it was time to rush off to second period. Laura stayed where she was. Miss Loon asked, How about you, Laura? What would you want if you were the one he'd hypnotized? She imagined a scenario where she went to sleep and woke up in her old house, with her mom and stepdad alive again, her sister sharing a bowl of cereal with her, her friends at school all back in her life. Would she want to wake up from that dream, knowing it was just a dream? Well, that wasn't difficult to answer, since she'd had that particular dream only a hundred times over the last few months. But she wasn't going to tell her teacher that, and really start crying, and have to go talk to a counselor again, be looked at totally differently by Maura Loon. And so she merely shrugged. Well, think it over, the teacher said, and we can talk about this again if you like. Laura nodded and hurried on her way, certain to be tardy to second period now. Old Widow Holcomb was in the front yard, where bits of yellow grass were emerging through melting snow. She was bent over in front of a patch of particularly thick grass, intently concentrating, like she had lost a contact lens or something. She should have looked ridiculous, a grown woman, maybe starting to appear middle-aged, seemingly weeding her lawn in late February. But Victoria Holcomb never looked ridiculous. Perhaps she just wasn't capable. Perhaps it was magic. Everything all right, Auntie? Laura asked. You need help with something? Holcomb made a dismissive sound. Just talking to the worms. Sounds like three more weeks of wintry weather ahead. Huh, Laura said, figuring that the calendar could have told her that just as well. Apparently some Jehovah's Witnesses came by yesterday afternoon, Holcomb said, but only one of them vomited. Onto the lawn? Lara asked. Worms probably loved that sort of thing. No, into her purse. The other one left with no adverse effects somehow. Huh, Lara said again. What else could she say? Well, tell them hi for me. If you like. They're worried you're not getting enough potassium, Holcomb said. We'll have to hunt for some mushrooms later, Lara suggested, going up the steps to the house. She actually didn't remember if it was mushrooms or potatoes or cucumbers that were supposed to be good sources of potassium, but the witch had a particular fondness for mushrooms. Well, they must be teaching you something in that school, Holcomb called after her. I'll mix you some toadstools and apricots for a soup later. Mmm, thanks, Lara said, and disappeared inside the house. It was probably a joke, undoubtedly a mean one, but she never could tell. Lara went into her room and got on her knees beside the bed, like she too had lost a contact lens. She reached under the bed for the stick, the stick she had used to bond Miss Loon and Mr. Seckler. She couldn't find it. Immediately, she knew what had happened. The witch had come into the room, found the stick, and hidden it away so Lara wouldn't be able to break the spell she had cast. To teach her a lesson? Just to be malicious? She wouldn't put it past Holcomb to be chuckling about it with her worm friends right now in the front yard. The stick was just further down beneath the bed than she thought next to a pair of library books she had forgotten she had even checked out, right before Christmas vacation. There were no words necessary to break the spell, simply the snapping of the branch 
But Lara said, I undo the spell I cast on my teachers. May they not suffer because of what I have done. And she slowly, almost gently, cracked the branch in two. Lara was first off the bus at school the next day. Acting on some kind of intuition, instead of going into the building, she went around to the east side of the school and to the employee parking lot. Mr. Seckler's little orange Prius was in its usual place, but no one was in it. So much for intuition. She tried to think of a spell that could locate her two teachers, but while she leafed through her notebook, she glanced up and saw a green Toyota Tercel pulling into a parking spot, not quite fitting between the lines, then backing up and trying again. It was Miss Loon. Lara walked over to the car, just as her English teacher got out. Oh, hello, Lara. Do you drive? I'm only fourteen. Even that was an exaggeration. Ah, well, then, we've, uh, got to stop meeting like this. The woman's hair was in a haphazard ponytail. Her makeup wasn't quite enough to cover a pair of puffy red eyes, and half of her blouse was untucked. What happened? Lara asked. Oh, do I look that terrible, kiddo? Miss Loon asked. I was only up crying half the night, not the whole thing. Lara opened her mouth to ask what happened again, but then simply waited. Miss Loon gathered up her briefcase, closed her car door, then opened it again, retrieving her eyeglasses from the seat. She slipped them on, making herself look ten years older somehow. So I guess you can be the first to know, since you seem to be practically my T.A. lately. Mr. Seckler and I are, uh, no longer engaged. Laura swallowed, but again said nothing. The teacher held up her left hand. There was no ring on it any more. But there hadn't been one on there long enough, or in sunny enough weather, for there to be a white spot where the ring used to be. We... we didn't even have a fight. It was just a long talk. He worried that he was going to break my heart, leave me devastated, all sorts of concerned, unmasculine things, but I was fine with it, really. I had, I don't know, been lonely, afraid life was passing me by, and I convinced myself I was in love with him. And he had done the same thing, I guess. Huh, Laura said, walking alongside her trying to look at the young woman, but not trip over the cracked, uneven asphalt ahead of them. Actually, it's kind of amazing. We had both felt the exact same thing these past few weeks, absolutely along the same lines. Like we were twins instead of, well, you know. And you don't feel that way anymore? Oh, I suppose I'll always love the man for the time we had together at least a little. But it's a bit like this cousin I had growing up, a male cousin who spent time with me when I was your age. I had a crush on him, sure, but I knew there was no point to it, since my mother and his mother were sisters. Lara very nearly said gross, but managed to control herself. One of her friends had gone to sweethearts with her cousin, and at a sleepover, her classmate Colby confessed she had once made out with her half-brother. Leslie's a little young to have had a midlife crisis, but I think it was something like that. Now he's got his hands full trying to patch things up with his boyfriend, or determining if it's worth trying to patch things up. And he said we should still be friends, just like every breakup in history. She craned her head back across the lot her focus on that orange Prius back there. But you know what? I think he actually meant it. And I think I'd actually like that. Cool, Lara said. She still felt guilty, tremendously so, but hoped there was some kind of happy ending to be had there, at least a low-level happy ending, like 
and they all lived with reasonable contentment and comfort for a good long while after that. Miss Loon turned her gaze back to Lara. So, how bad do I look? Will everybody in class realize I'm a jilted bachelorette as soon as I walk in? No, Lara said. With the glasses on, you can't even tell. And it was pretty much true. Good. Today we're going to talk about sayings from Shakespeare plays we still use today. It'll be fun. Oh, stuff like To Infinity and Beyond? Lara asked. Well, I think that one's from another writer. More like Give the Devil His Due, or Dead as a Doornail, or Living in a Fool's Paradise. She paused at the glass double doors. Or what you have, Lara? A heart of gold. That struck the girl as enormously generous, after what she had done. But she'd take it. Wow, thanks. You too, Miss Loon. Her teacher smiled at her. Then they went into the school, side by side. So maybe Laura Deming had been wrong when this whole thing started. Maybe next year would be the best Valentine's Day ever. The end. Anyhow, you know, this is not a huge story. Nothing substantive happens in it. It's not a life-changing incident in Lara Deming's saga, as a Canadian would say. But it is written with the holiday in mind, and maybe gives you a little bit, a, a nugget to chew on while you're waiting for the bigger, the bigger meals. I had never intended to write more than the first Lara Deming story, but now I'm absolutely certain that unless something happens to me, there will be more. I think we've talked about that before when it is a long-term series that the magic is that time flies by for you. And each installment that you write, there's more white in your hair. Bellara will stay the same age. I, maybe there's magic in that. Black magic? I, um, I sprinkle little references and, uh, you know, private jokes in these stories. Um, when I was in junior high... My English teacher was Miss Moon, and my social studies teacher was Mr. Mon. I liked both of those teachers a lot, and I think that the main characters are, are sort of based on them. It, <laughs> I'm not sure how much to go into, whether the episode should just end or whether I should say more about the episode, about the story. But long before I ever wrote this story, I had the idea of Lara calling the kid. There was a kid that was like class clown, or he was a bully, or he was just a douche, that was in her old school in the very first story that I wrote. He was bullying, you know, like a plain girl or a nerdy girl or something like that. And Lara cast this spell on him that he would be in love with her because I, it will be funny to humiliate the, this boy. Lara is not, and uh, she is inherently a good person, and so when she saw the embarrassment that this boy was heaping upon himself, she broke the spell. And as I was developing sequels or, or continuations or more stories about that character, I did have the idea of her calling this boy from the very first story and saying, hey, I don't know if you remember me. And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Because uh, if you recall, <laughs> that was only two years ago or three years ago. It's not like you're in your 40s and you call somebody that you knew in elementary school and ask if you remember me. But that was the idea. It was her, like as an adult, calling this man who had been a child with her, alongside her, and saying, hey, do you remember this girl that we had in our class together? Do you remember her? 
And the boy says, of course I remember her. I think about her every single day. Only he's not a boy anymore. He is a middle-aged man. And I just liked the idea of the color draining out of Laura's face as she realizes that this silly thing that she did to a boy that was acting out in class had ramifications. The waves continue to this day. The idea of that, of, oh my gosh, he still thinks about her all the time. I don't know that I will love anybody the way that I loved her, kind of thing. It becomes insanely sad. And that is something that I wanted. I wanted to examine and I couldn't think of an opportunity to use that when I was writing these stories in the same way that I couldn't think of an opportunity to write Holcomb takes Lara for a driving lesson. And they talk about like some song that's on the radio. It's like Marin Morris or something like that, which was a song that got incessantly played on the radio at the time that I was writing that story. And I do like that. I like that magic is fun and exciting. It's a novelty for her, but she discovers that, you know, even these little harmless spells that she cast might not be harmless. You know, she has to be careful. She can't allow herself to use these powers willy nilly because they affect other people. Anyway, I think that that's where the story came from, is just that idea of her calling the boy from school. And it is a lesson that she learns. So maybe it is a significant milestone in her life. Although in my mind, it's much like the Christmas one that I shared just a month ago, geez, where, yeah, it's a slight story. It it doesn't necessarily need 40,000 words to tell that story. But it is a sandbox, these Lara and the Witch stories, and it's fun to play in the sandbox and to tell different stories with different tones and different lengths. And I hope that you liked these. Let me know if you want me to continue to run them on the show. I have two more that uh, I haven't put out yet in addition to the novel length one. One is when Lara is in high school, she meets another girl that is a witch or claims to be anyway. And then the other one is Lara falls in love, I think in her junior year of high school. But can you trust love? And will it end well? Or was it written by Big Anklevich? And in life, you never know who is writing your story. So those are stories that I I need to put out at some point. It is harder in the wintertime to do these things because I often I will edit on my bed. I've got the laptop. I put it there. I edit on the bed. And if it is boring, I will fall asleep. But at the cabin, I'm sitting. I'm sitting at a table. And if something gets boring, I stand up and I go do something else if that makes sense. I mean, even if it is take a nap, but when I wake up from that nap, there's the laptop still sitting there ready for me to edit more. I just get a lot more done in that environment. And that's, that's good. That's fine. I have considered taking the laptop to the library, sitting in one of those little cubicles with headphones on and editing because, you know, it's, I'm not going to fall asleep there and I don't have nearly as many distractions I haven't done it, though. I tend to just write (laughs) and read Wikipedia when I'm at the library. The the title, The People We Touch, was one of many. When I got to the end of the document the first time, there was a list of potential titles for the story. I think I used or wasted an entire session at the library looking up slogans for insurance companies. Because I had oh so cleverly called the first Lara and the Witch story, Like a Good Neighbor, which is the slogan of State Farm. Well, it was before friggin' Jake from State Farm came in and ruined it. 
ruined. They're all awful. And somebody didn't like that. But I did. And when it came time to write the second one, I scoured my memory of insurance company slogans, and I thought, you're in good hands with Allstate. Oh my Lord, that's excellent. That's, that's even better than like a good neighbor. It's perfect for that story. And so I had set the precedent and each one that I've written after that has had an insurance company slogan as its title. And maybe you think that that's not cool. Or maybe you think that that's, oh, what's the word? There's a word for when something tries to be cute and it fails. It's on the tip of my brain. But I, I'm late, so I'm not going to sit here and try and think of the word. You probably know the word. Remind me. Just one more little bit, although this may be long. I'm not sure. So I've uh, finished editing the whole thing now, and it's almost time for me to put it out. Oh, I'm a little behind. And it occurred to me that it's weird that I keep writing all of these stories or books with female protagonists, female main characters, and yet I'm the one narrating the audiobooks. It, is that strange? Like, the Holcomb stories are, Lara is the main character, Old Widow Holcomb is the secondary character, and then there's usually a third. And in this one, isn't the third character Maura Loon? Oh, and by the way, that was a mistake to name that character that because there's Lara and then there's Maura Loon. And there were like six different times that I'd call Maura Laura, which is Lara, just with an L. And her name is Lara, not Lara. But there were times when I caught myself saying L-A-U-R-A. <laughs> Anyway, um, the next one that I'm going to do, I believe, is called The Company You Keep. And guess what? It also has a tertiary character, the third lead, if you will, in casting parlance, that is female. And yet here I am narrating all the characters. Maybe it's not weird. Maybe it's totally fine because I narrate my own audiobooks and I think I do them justice because I agonize over them. And maybe somebody else who has the right gender for the characters wouldn't. That's not true. I mean, anybody who is a professional... Okay, that's not true either. I was going to say anybody who is a professional audiobook narrator is good at what they do. But that is very far from the truth. <laughs> This has nothing to do with anything, but I went to the movies the other day uh, with my cousin and with uh, Marshall Latham. Marshall of the New Republic. Thank you. And there was a trailer for a movie. You know, it's, it's a long-running series, almost all of which star this one particular actor. And I've never been a fan, so I don't bother watching those movies. But this trailer, every time that actor delivered a line or was on screen, I was just shocked by how uncharismatic he is, how incapable of depth or actual human feeling. It all sounds like they hired a big, dumb robot to play that part. And the novelty is that, you know, this is the first movie starring an actual robot. And so that's why everybody goes to it. It's just like, hey, did you hear about that movie with the robot? Yeah, they're on the 10th one. Anyhow, I, I saw that and I was just like, how is this guy the lead in this series? How has nobody else noticed how abominable this guy is? I, I, I remember a few years ago people criticizing a couple of actresses that were only pretty and they couldn't act at all, not to save their lives. And um, it didn't bother me terribly because they were so pretty. Do you know what I mean? So maybe this is like that. 
he has a look and he also has a persona, I suppose, that sells tickets, that puts butts in seats. It repels me like garlic wood to Dracula. But there are other people that are like, geez, no, more garlic, dudes. I love it. I love it. I'm having garlic, 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 baked beans, garlic, and garlic. Anyhow, <laughs> I got off track, but that's what I do. Once again, I hope that you think I do justice to these stories. There is a story that I wrote a couple of years ago that is first person, female, completely. It's just her talking about her day for an entire month, uh, like a journal kind of thing. And I've never dared sit down and record that one. I, I, I am aware that that one needs a female narrator. And I've always wanted to ask Julie Hoverson if she would narrate it for me. But I am intimidated by her because she said things on Facebook, not about me, but it makes me think, oh, okay, she has a temper. I don't want to cross her. Anyhow, I'm going to let you go. But once again, thanks. And uh, keep romance alive. <laughs> oh, one more thing. Uh, I wonder how many times I can get away with telling the story of Laura casts a spell and it has unintended consequences and she realizes maybe it's best not to play with magic. Because in my mind, I think that I could write a dozen stories where Laura casts a spell and it has unintended consequences and she says, oh shoot, maybe I shouldn't play with magic like this. Just a thought. If you would like to support me, I gave you the option of buying the story You're in Good Hands, which tells the story of what happened to Lara and the Bone Man, why they moved away. And um, you can always support me on Patreon. I do put out a Patreon address every month that is only for you. And lately I have been putting out an additional bonus item Every month, I try to have the episodes go a little bit longer for the Patreon supporters. Just anything that I can do to make them feel like, no, this is a good investment of my dollar an episode. Or more. You don't have to stop there. If you're unable to do either of those things, you can always go on to Amazon and review something that I've written. Go on to Apple Podcasts and give a good review to my show. I can't remember if I've ever asked somebody to do that with the Rish Outcast. It's just not been a priority for me. I wanted this uh, show to be small and to be my show uh, that only people that really like my stuff would hear. But maybe that's foolish. The more people listen to it, the more I can call myself a, you know, a, a successful podcast or a writer or audiobook. Anyhow, I thank you for listening all the way through to the end. And, uh, and, and certainly, Lara Deming thanks you. Verdict is kind of out when it comes to Old Widow Holcomb. Happy Valentine's Day, kids. Good night. Well, well. We've reached the end of another nigh unto interminable episode of the Rish Outcast. Now that the end has come, you may forget how painful it was, and that it was touch and go there for a while. I am here to remind you of what we've all suffered together. However, I am also here to remind you that the Outcast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Download the file, listen to it, copy it, share it, and bring it up as a cautionary tale to frighten young ones into minding their manners. But do not change the files or attempt to sell them, or the worm will turn on you. And oh, that worm, how it hungers.
Parish. And thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music in this episode. And special thanks to White Chris for the mu- Why does his race have anything to do with it? Big Sean, it's Chris White. <sighs> special thanks to oh-so-superior Caucasian Chris for the music used in this episode. No, 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 it, his name isn't Caucasian. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I'm going to finish the people we touch <clears throat> again. How many times did I use the word apparently? One, two, three, three. I can live with three. I wonder if undoubtedly is the word that I want. I hate this, by the way. I finished it yesterday, two days ago, and here I am writing new scenes because I'm an idiot. Dude, you can always add stuff. You can always make these things better. Uh, it's frozen, by the way. And she ended up leaving him. A fan of La Irony, Lara. <laughs> what an evil bitch. <laughs>